Welcome everyone to the Daily Covfefe. Today is November 4th, Monday, November 4th. I am your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined by our special guest host, Gracie West. Hey, Gracie, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Carter? Uh, I'm all right. Appreciate you filling in. Uh, we're going to start seeing Gracie a little bit more regularly. Not all the time, but whenever she's got time for us, we're going to have uh, Gracie on. One of the reasons I love talking to you, Gracie, is uh, like me, you have children and you're very attuned to what's going on in the world of indoctrinating our youngsters. Yep. Um, you shared a story on Facebook that I think might interest a lot of our audience. Um, do you want to just kind of recap and we can, we can talk about what you learned? Yeah, sure. So I, my daughter and my son go to public schools. My son goes to a charter school that's really STEM focused. And so he gets very little indoctrination there. They're really just focused on science and math and that kind of thing. My daughter goes to a general public school. And so I keep an eye on the stuff that they tell her. <laughs> so I can't go to all of their field trips because I work part-time, but I choose to take some time off if I need to, to go to a couple of them throughout the year. And so I chose to go to one that was a children's play in Portland. It's at the Portland Children's Theater. And it's not because I actually wanted to go see this. It's I wanted actually to go to the Rock and Miller Mineral Show field trip, but I realized I've been to the Portland Children's Theater before and it's a propaganda machine. So I wanted to know exactly how to talk to my daughter when she got back from this field trip. Yep. So I chose to attend this one. I figured they would butcher the play. It was about Jane Goodall. It was called Me Jane. So it was literally just about her. So, I mean, Jane Goodall, there's lots, uh, lots to talk about about her you know, career uh, scientifically and like, you know, her, as an anthropologist and she, uh, she started out not without a degree and then got a degree later after having started doing work. And like, there's some amazing, and, and as I think you said, changed, changed how we look at primates in many ways. Yeah. Well, she changed every single science book in the world with her research. So this, this woman's career was epic. And I kind of was like, oh, well, it'll be interesting to see. I, I'll probably learn some things I didn't know about her. That'll be great. Uh, and yeah, I thought it would be about her career. I thought it would be about important about Jane Goodall, her career. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kind of assumed like how I actually had no idea how they could butcher her story, but I assumed that they would. And so that's why I attended. You would not believe how badly and in what way they actually did butcher this story. It wasn't really a, a story about her career. How do you put your story about Jane Goodall? I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, here's how they did it. They started off this play with her as a child dreaming about going to Africa and wanting to observe animals. Okay. That sounds about sure. right. Yeah. So the next thing you see, and it's a musical, and so the next thing you see are her bigoted neighbors who come and sing a song to her about how she can't do this because she'll probably just end up being a secretary. And so, (laughs) so I was like, okay, you know, that probably happened back in the day. She probably had, you should probably mentioned once that, you know, people expected her to become a secretary or something. And just to be clear, I think she was actually a secretary at first. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think she went, was a secretary, had no education, but did research on her own and ended up like getting sponsored to actually get a PhD after that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know she anyway. didn't actually go to school. She's She just had such a passion for research right. uh, in her own unique way, which is actually her way of research was transformative to science as well, not just the information she gathered. But so anyway, I'm sitting there going, okay, okay, we had to bring it up, of course. Bigoted neighbors back in the olden days. Got it. Probably true. But yeah, probably true. Um, but really, I'm sure that it clearly it didn't affect her life, right? Right. And she right. moved on. So I kept waiting for her to move on, but she never moved on. The entire play was her as a child holding her stuffy, stuffed animal. Yeah. It was a little monkey and singing about how she dreams of going to Africa and researching animals, wildlife. And, and then, can't. no, every so often her neighbors would come back and remind her that she can't. And so eventually when the play ended, I thought this has to be intermission. This yeah, has to be. It ended for her as a kid when it ended? Yeah. Oh yeah. She was still holding her stuffy the entire, she never grew up. She never went to Africa. She <laughs> never, <laughs> she just sang about it. And uh, yeah. And the neighbors sang about it, how they couldn't and all that. And and then at the very end, they showed little clips like it's a live theater. So they have some cloth hanging and they show a projector of her face. And she makes this noise of a, of a chimpanzee as an old woman. Okay. It's not even like her young career. So this old right. woman is making chimpanzee noises. And she says, that means I'm Jane, me Jane or something like that. And then someone comes on stage and says, Jane ended up growing up and going to Africa and doing her research. Basically, there was just like a real quick statement. <laughs> I was so bad. I thought it had to. I thought it had to have been intermission because I thought there's no way they're going to end the play right here, right? And they it's did. Like having a play about Einstein while he's working, like it ends before you know he's working at the patent office in the end. Yeah. Like there's no. No, they, 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 I don't know if they thought it would be more relevant to children to just keep her as a child. Okay, that's, that's like the benefit of the doubt. But they really underestimate children because I, the first thing I heard the kids say when we stood up to leave, and I'm with this entire class of kids, the yeah. boys are like, that was boring. Because, sure. you know, it's just a bunch of people singing about how uh, this little girl can't do stuff. Well, and, and why is she famous? Like, how, how would a kid get any information about why she was famous. Yeah. I, I mean, no learning about her. Right. I mean, they would have had to learn about her in class. In fact, they, they already had because I decided I'm going to ask each one of these children separately away from their friends, some questions that are not leading at all. So I'm just going to get a feel for what they thought about this play. So I said, I said to the first kid that I was walking with as we were walking to the bus after the play. And I said, so what'd you think of the play and shrug? And I said, was it what you were expecting? No. Well, what were you expecting? And he said, well, I thought it would be when she grew up. And then the next kid, um, I said, did you like the play? No. Why? Well, it didn't have her go to Africa. <laughs> she didn't and do anything. <laughs> she didn't do <laughs> 
<laughs> and then the next kid, shrug, did you like it? Shrug. Well, was it what you were expecting? No. What were you expecting? I asked seven different children individually what they thought of it. And it was all shrugs or no. I hate it. I didn't like it. And then I asked is, and so the next question was, was this what you were expecting? And all the answers were no. And then I asked, what were you expecting? And they all said something like one of these statements. I thought it would be about when she was an adult. I thought it would be about her career. I thought we would get to see monkeys or even pretend ones, you know? Right. You know, chimpanzees and stuff. And they, I thought she would go to Africa. And one kid actually goes, why didn't she ever go to Africa? <laughs> right. You know? Because it might as well be about Jane Smith, the girl who dreamed about going to Africa but never did squat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes her mom would come on stage and be the encouraging voice. And then she would dance around with chickens and a dog. So she was like, these are the animals in her domesticated life. It was never about the animals that she went and observed in wildlife. I mean, it was so, so bad, Carter. It was like, almost like they were trying to tell children. I mean, they were so demoralized and bummed out when we left. It was like, they should have basically made a big statement and said, just go home. They basically said, don't bother doing anything in life, girls, because the world is against you. And boys, we're not even going to address you because you really don't matter at all. Like they made the entire thing about gender about this little girl. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It was sad. And here's the thing. Jane Goodall, changed every science book with her research. This play could have been epic. Okay, this is how my daughter answered it. She goes, when I said, what were you expecting? She goes, well, I wish they would have showed the part where her favorite chimp threw her off a cliff. And I thought, <laughs> I thought this could have been so epic. This play could have been epic, you I think, know? I think she was the, wasn't she the first researcher to name the chimps instead of just giving them numbers? And because she did that, she was the first to notice they had like personalities. Like, yeah massively interesting especially if you're a kid and you like animals i mean you could make it super yeah. interesting for kids but but also she was the first person to well she changed here's how she changed every science book partially she we used to think that humans were the only animals in the earth that used tools or made tools mm. and we also used to think that humans were the only ones that felt compassion for their young and had strong mother-child bonding. We also thought we were the only um, species to go to war. But she discovered that these chimpanzees go to war, they have strong mother-children ties, and they use tools and they make them. Yep. So she, she just changed every science book on the planet. And, and there was a couple other things she discovered that were, oh, how she researched by sitting really still and watching them in their natural environment. That was a first. People just observed them in controlled environments, labs. You actually went out into the field and watched them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, all right, let's, okay. So it was a horrible play. They did a bad job. But um, what lesson do you think kids took away from this horrible play i just think yeah i mean don't grow up um don't even try because there's the world's against you um just yeah it was really demoralizing the kids left really bummed out 
So let me let me ask you this. Um, if you're, I don't know if you've noticed this. I, I have, and I, I don't want to be the old curmudgeon who's like, well, not back when I went to school, we walked uphill both ways. And like, you know, I, I get that things are different and, and whatever, but I'm, I'm seeing the, I, I have a, a daughter who's um, similar age <laughs> and I'm seeing just a massive dumbing down of everything like what she's capable of learning if i sit down and teach her is vastly different than what she's expected to learn at school they had um, so we do partly homeschool and partly she goes to a private school so it's a little bit of a split but they had one day i'm glad she missed this day they had an environmental you know let's have, let's talk about climate change whenever but all they did was listen to a lecture by greta thunberg now greta doesn't talk about any science at all mm-hmm. If yeah. you listen to any of Greta's speeches, all it is is uh, child moral shaming and moral shaming. Right, that's all it is. There's no, there's no explanation of what's actually happening. Um, there's no delving into the science. So they were basically just indoctrinated about how to do um, climate activism, not actually how to be a scientist. Right, yeah. they were learning how to skip school. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, but but it's not just that it's every I see this in every subject just a, a lowering of the standards, and if you and you know you mentioned something about this also. You mentioned that you notice that they're perpetuating stereotypes that don't need to be perpetuated. Can you talk about that a little bit as well? Yeah. So I was thinking about it, and it made me realize it's not just that they're trying to emphasize that back in the olden days there were these negative things that happened, but it occurred to me that they're actually the ones that are teaching this generation and many generations actually about these negative stereotypes. So these children are growing up in a world where it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl and it hasn't mattered for a long time. Mm-hmm. You can still go to, I mean, like a hundred years, you can right. go. No to one would say you can't go be an anthropologist because you're a girl now. No right. Nobody. And so who cares? Why would you make a play about that? Right. Um, and, and it doesn't even have to be mentioned that, by the way, Jane Goodall was a female and that's important. We don't, what it, what it made me realize is that they're the ones perpetuating and teaching these stereotypes. And I thought about that and I realized I learned the following stereotypes from women's studies classes. These are stereotypes I had never, ever heard in my life from a family environment or a community environment ever. And, and I sat in women's studies classes and they taught me the stereotypes of Asian women can't drive, black people are lazy, Jews are cheap, women are emotional. Like they literally taught me that those are stereotypes. And I thought to myself, just after seeing this play, I thought, why would they focus on this at all? Why wouldn't, if they were really progressive, they would want to let these go and never mention them again and celebrate that society doesn't really talk about that anymore, right? They're actually teaching it. Yeah, they're the ones teaching this stuff, right? I, I looked at that list and, you know, if I can, I'll analyze my life in fairness, right? I don't remember where I heard Asian women can't drive. Um, Jews are cheap. I think I probably heard that in like culturally somewhere in jokes. Women are emotional. I 
don't know where I heard that. But the Blacks are lazy. Actually, that one's an interesting one to me because I've only heard it, Gracie, literally in the past couple of years. And it, it was because I was reading about this social justice crap and them saying, oh, these are like, stop saying blacks are lazier. They, you know, they, they're talking about the stereotype. And I was right. like, oh, I'm, you know, over 40. I've never heard that before. Is that right. a thing? Right. I, I just, I, I learned these things and I thought to myself, well, why would people think that? Or why would they say that? And where would they get that? And so my mind, when you learn about a stereotype, your mind immediately starts going there. It goes there. It's like, well, why would people say black people are lazy? And well, how, and I try, you try to like imagine it, like where would that go? <laughs> really what they're doing is instilling into you some sort of a pathway to this idea of this could be true. I mean, they don't. Right. Cause like, it, it begs the question, how did it evolve? Like if you say, if you say, for example, let's just pick a different one. Asians are good at math, right? You immediately think, I, I mean, I, it immediately invites the question, well, why is that a stereotype? Gee, are Asians, like, are they, do they do better at math than other? Like you start asking. And so if okay. you say things like blacks are lazy, you immediately, are, your mind's in the question like, oh gee, I, had, I hadn't noticed. Are, is, it, did that arise for a reason? Right. I think it's, an, it's important to let bad ideas die. And what happens is confirmation bias. When you believe something, you see it, right? Well, even if you're not believing these stereotypes, once you learn them, if you ever you know, are on the road and an Asian woman cuts you off because she didn't see you, automatically you start going, hmm, I wonder if that's true. I mean, Right. I heard about that stereotype. I I heard about that. And it's silly because maybe you're pissed off at that moment, but maybe, I mean, really what they're doing is they're keeping these ideas alive and they give people reason to kind of keep them going sometimes, I think. I I mean, especially if you've never heard them, why would someone teach it to you who cares about social justice? Yeah. It it reminds me of, um, Carrie and I did this thing a while ago where we, uh, we looked at some phrases that they were, this is very similar where the, the social justice crowd will introduce um, the racist origin of phrases or sexist origin of phrases that we use now in common parlance, but don't, didn't know the origin. So they like maybe had started out quote problematic, but really aren't problematic anymore because no one thinks that when they say them, they just say them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they now they reintroduced, so some of the phrases were like, um, no can do, long time no see. Like, I, I, no one thinks about where those come from, right? Yeah, but, and nobody cares. And no one cares. But then, but then they reintroduce the reasons behind. And now, every time someone says it or every time, you know, I'm thinking about saying it or whatever, suddenly I'm, suddenly I'm uh, thinking about that. And the one that I just found today before this show is I use, I use this phrase all the time in business. You know the phrase uh, "grandfather clause" or "grandfathered in" when something's grandfathered in in a rule. Yeah, right. So I've been using that. You know, in my professional career, I've done a lot of contract stuff, and grandfather clauses are a thing. People talk about them; they're normal. I spent, I don't know, at least two decades probably where they were grandfather clauses were a thing in discussion once in a while in contracts. Never once had I thought about or known the origin of that. It took social justice advocates to tell me 
well, these have racist origins in Jim Crow laws, blah, 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 blah. So, okay, so suddenly now that's what I have to think about. Suddenly now I'm forced to be perpetuating this idea of like, oh, okay, now I have to think about slavery and Jim Crow and all this other stuff when really no one's thinking about there's nothing there's nothing racist about grandfather clause anymore. There may have been, but not now. But also it makes me question, was that really the origin or was it just used heavily in that discussion during that time period? And what also true. Yeah. And what is, I think what we're dealing with and we've talked about this multiple times and, and, and that's what you kind of have to come back to this is the religious nature of these folks who are bringing up these old stereotypes what they see is that you're touching something impure as far as they're concerned. You are touching something impure and you don't know it and they have to educate you on its the purity level of your activity and your thinking and your speech. And so if you choose now to cross that line of this purity line, now you're just guilty of it. But it's like, if they weren't religious about it, they would be happy to let these ideas die. And to, they would be happy that society wouldn't, wouldn't think ever again about how grandfather clause is actually related to Jim Crow. I mean, we'd, be, we'd love to let those things die off. They should die right? off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you go back far enough, I'm sure that lots of words in every language have, quote, problematic origins. I mean, humanity has been a mess for much of humanity. There's been lots of horrible things happening to people all the time. Um, but you know, I, they do want to perpetuate this. So think about this. They've got kids, they've dumbed the kids down. So instead of actually learning about the subject, they're instead learning about the grievance study stuff that surrounds the subject. So the important thing about Jane Goodall is not, is not actually the important thing about Jane Goodall. It's that she had ovaries. Yeah. And someone, someone didn't her. like that. <laughs> right. No, Carter, right. hold on. I, I have to say, this this play was not about Jane. It was about her neighbors. It, really. Okay. The, the the play was like her neighbors couldn't get over the this little girl's dream. And that was that was the main point. Right. So the I mean the only purpose of that is to convince you that the world is a scary, sexist place. Yeah. Essentially. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's no other lesson. So I asked my daughter, I said, how would you have written this play? Because she goes, I wish they would have shown the part where this, her favorite chimp threw her off a cliff. And I just thought this, (laughs) this play could have been epic, right? I mean, you've got to, she has to have story after story in her life that is so crazy. The average person has no clue what, what it would, what it could consist of. Like, did she break bones when this chimp threw her off a cliff? What was, what does she think the chimp was thinking? Was he just having fun or was he like, I wonder if she'll scream or, you know, like people wonder these things and about chimps and she knows all of that. And so it's like, they could have taken this opportunity of, cause I said, how would you tell me how this play would have gone for you? You write the play. I told her, I challenge you to write the play. So She's like, well, I would have had her on an airplane going to Africa. It's like, yeah, that's exciting for kids, right? Oh, yeah. She would have had her out in the wildlife observing. She would have had her favorite chimp throw her off a cliff. And then she would have her mom die because that was a significant part of Jane's life. And then she would have had, I forget what the other couple points were, but I just thought even the children could have written a better play than this. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And I, and I almost wanted to challenge all of them to actually do that because it would give them cause to find out what actually happened in her life. They had such a missed opportunity. But the, the thing is, though, Gracie, the adults aren't dumb. They could have written that play. I'm sure the adults that wrote that play knew those things about Jane Goodall. But they chose to write this play. That's a, it's a very conscious choice. It's not just incompetence. It's not like, oh, they just wrote a bad play. Kids could have written a better play. They could have written a better play. This is the play they wanted to write because this is the message that they, that they wanted to transmit. And they know that if they said, hey, everyone come to the children's theater, we're going to have a message about uh, sexism. Yeah. How little girls can't do anything. No one would want to go. It's not exciting. So they have to borrow Jane Goodall's name, slap it on there so that people are attracted to come because of Jane Goodall because she did have an exciting, she's still alive. She did have an exciting, interesting life and did a lot of interesting things. So they just use that as a facade. And then when you get there, they have to do the bait and switch and give you, oh, actually this is a play about sexism. Yeah. And you know, as I was watching the play, I noticed something as an ex-SJW, as a former SJW, I I can see society the way they would see it, which is you see racism everywhere. You see the microaggressions. You see, you know, even though now I know this is all BS and I have to retrain my brain. Like I literally almost always, well, every single time I say, hey guys, I think to myself, correct yourself. And then I think to myself, no. And then I celebrate the fact that I will not figure out the gendered situation that I just created in, in like, I practically forget what to say to people because I just said, Hey guys, you know, so I have this SJW brain that I'm trying to shut down, but I can still see through it. I can still hear through it. And what I thought was really interesting is the SJWs wrote the play. Okay. And then you've got these artistic directors who are directing the play and, and they're probably not the same people. Okay. Yeah. So if the SJWs had watched this play after they put it together, they would have been horrified, okay? <laughs> the one black guy in the play played, at some point he played her dog. And so for SJWs, that immediately would have been a microaggression. microaggression. Sure. Right. And then there were like some of the things she would say to the dog was like, sit. And he would sit and stuff, you know, that kind of stuff where I was like, first of all, who, this is a play, it's artistic. It's like, nobody should be thinking about how this looks racist. I don't think anyone ever does unless they are an SJW or a former SJW. But I just thought to myself, if they watched this play, they would just be horrified <laughs> because built into it was something that they would knee jerk to. Sure. You know, well, but they need jerk. It's so easy to knee jerk to everything, right? It's probably impossible to have a perfect play. Exactly. No, there's no way to have anything perfect. That's the goal, right? Is to find. Well, once you make finding racism virtuous, you find it everywhere. Right. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing with. I mean, honestly, I as a non social justice advocate, someone who never really bought into it. The thing that always bothers me is when I, when I, so justice is something I've been very passionate about my entire life. Justice, just the word justice. Um, you always have to be suspect when people add modifiers to it, right? Because 
we all can nod our heads and say, justice, that's a good cause, the cause of justice, right? Even, even Superman, what was it? Truth, justice in the American way or whatever it was, right? Those were the, those were the things in the old Superman comics. Okay, justice is, justice is important. Why would someone need to add a modifier to justice? Well, there's only one reason to add a modifier to justice. It's to undo the meaning of justice. You don't need a modifier. If you're actually after justice, you don't need to add a modifier. You need to add a modifier if you're not after justice and you need to corrupt the term. Mm -hmm. So that's all social justice is. Social justice is not a, it's, it's not justice. Yeah. So it's, that's why you actually, get Well, it's actually a mid-century, let's see, I should say the 1980s, especially feminism. They focused instead of on rights, they focused on representation. So mm -hmm. how are women represented? How are minority groups represented in society? And so that's what they mean when they say social justice. That's what they used to mean. I'm, I'm thinking that's changing because the new goal is equity. It's less about representation now. And so justice has, it used to be synonymous with fairness, but it isn't any longer. It's, it's well, it's synonymous with not fair because they don't, because equity is the opposite of equality. So it's kind of flipped the script. Yeah, I mean, justice inherently, right, is an in, it's a it's a term that applies to individuals, right? You you get justice, and and the idea is that you get justice based on your your actions and what you've done, right? And there's there's you can you can have, you know, it can be injustice applied to you, or or you can have just outcome, right? Um, but social justice. I, I, this is from my perspective, what I see all those three lines of social justice, including back to the feminism, and actually when it was used originally, I think which was the late 19th century, actually, when, when it start, first started to be used. Um, it's, the, it's removing individuality from justice and treating, it, it's talking about justice of groups. And as soon as you do that, um, as soon as you have justice of, what, quote, justice of one group over another, you necessarily need to subordinate the individual to the group so you'll end up with not justice for individuals right you, you either have justice for individuals or justice or quote justice for groups you can't have both right, right? but once you decide that you have to have justice for groups then you have to put people into groups well, exactly <laughs> and, great, and different versions of groups over time evolve but it's always groups right so then right. it's like, what group are you in? And what group have I put you in? And who gets to decide? And who, whose voice is more authoritative? And so it becomes this sort of a downward spiral of hierarchical. Yeah, we've talked about this too. The, the hierarchy of oppression. Right, right. And then, and, then, and then you can start looking at it from group perspectives. Well, if I organize the groups this way, can I, can I make arguments about any, any difference in outcome for groups? I can automatically just attribute to injustice, right? Even if it has nothing to do with injustice, it could be groups choose things differently. Yeah, but yeah, you suddenly exactly. Then attribute everything to injustice. So how yeah. do you, how do you, let's talk to parents for a minute. How do you recommend parents, because you know, you're not the only person sending their kids to school that's getting this kind of crap thrown at them. What do you recommend people do? Well, I recommend that you find out what their field trips are first. I mean, anytime there's a special speaker, anytime the counselor, like if you're a parent who has time, like if you're not working full time, go to school on the days where the counselor comes in and talks to the kids. Because in my kids' school, 
the counselor comes in once a month and talks to the kids. Now, I, I've heard them, I say, I say, I've asked them, like, what does this counselor say exactly, you know, and it's things about bullying and da, 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 you know, and stuff, warm fuzzies, she hands out warm fuzzies, which are these little fuzzy balls, you know, it's so pathetic, it's like, it's like a, it's like a, an episode of how to make kids weaker, <laughs> um, and so I would, I would recommend, if you're going to keep your kids in public school, like I do, choose like find out what it is that they're learning outside of the curriculum. First, take a look at the curriculum, but then find out whether these special things like the assemblies, do they have a special speaker, like Greta? Do they have field trips that are going to hear somebody speak or are they having like even organizations come in and do something? Because these organizations can sound like really great things, but when you go listen to them, you would be surprised sometimes it's just this cover for indoctrination, of course. Yep. But go, because if you're going to leave your kid in, in public school, you have to know exactly how to talk to them afterwards about what they saw. That's my strategy. Some people just pull them out, you know, but my strategy is expose them to these things. First, tell them what they're going to hear. Like I tell them every day, these are the things you're going to hear in life out there and expose them to them and then be knowing what they're being exposed to and then talk to them about it and say, did you notice how they, the people who wrote this play wanted you to know that some people in Jane's life didn't think she could do it, but why do you think they focused on those people instead of what Jane actually did? I mean, it's important to ask these questions to kids so that they can start observing around them. Like, why is, why are things being done like this? Or why are the adults in my life presenting things this way? Like they need to start becoming critical thinkers and you're the only one that can help them. If yeah. you shelter them from that. Now, every child is different. So I don't tell p parents how to parent. But if you, if you feel like your kid needs to be sheltered from those things, that's, you know, that's fine. But that's, if your kid is being exposed to these things, just know what they're being exposed to because you need to have these conversations of, even if it's just questions that you ask, like, why do you think they did this? And point it out, ask in a way that makes them actually think about it. <laughs> well, and there's no way, I mean, there's no way to actually shelter them. Even if you homeschool your child, um, they're going to get exposed to these ideas. These ideas are everywhere. All the kids who aren't homeschooled are exposed to them. So if yeah. I'm on the soccer team, they're talking like that, that will be there. It's in mainstream media. You know, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. So it is, it's, it's with their peers because they're watching it on TV or they're hearing it from school and their parents aren't talking to them about it. Right. My son came home the other day from his STEM class, you know, his STEM school. And he said, I told the kids in my class that the color white is actually all the colors put together and that black is actually not a color. It's the absence of color. And they all said, you're, that's racist. Right. <laughs> and I said, son, I've told you that everything has been racialized and that includes facts. Right. So that includes science. And so I will not tell you to censor how you think or what you say. Just be aware that what you say could become national news with no good reason. Right. Like facts are actually racial, racially um, loaded right. now. Yeah. And you can, and you can, if you teach them to critically think they can, they can draw those conclusions themselves, right? You can be like, well, do you think it's actually racist? Like is, 
what is what is racist? I mean, that's, you know. Yeah. And the, the other thing that he could have thought to say is there's different shades of black, but true black, like pitch black is technically the absence of color, but, or light. But um, there are different shades of black. Like you can use one of those super bright lasers and see through black because it's not fully black. So there's just this whole interesting science to color and how it relates to light and how it relates to the white and black. And so it's fascinating. And he has done some of his own research on this on YouTube with really those kind of interesting scientist types who can also communicate and they're young and they make YouTube channels. He mm -hmm. watches those. And so when he tries to communicate what he sees to his classmates, they're like you said, they're so dumbed down. All they hear is black and white. You said something racist, <laughs> right? You know, they really are. They really are training a generation. They probably already trained generations of this, but you know, they really are training generations of, of kids to just be um, drones, to be zombies for the cause. And you got to empty their head out of facts. So facts are, I think part of the problem, Gracie, is facts are, facts are bad for them because the more someone knows about the world and how it works, um, the, the, actually, I think the, the better they have context and actually more likely they're able to critically think about things because they can see, oh, Actually, in this case, it's that. In that case, it's that. I understand that. I see some complexity. The more you learn about the world, I think the harder it is to be indoctrinated into like mindless zombies. So they actually, I, I think the dumbing down of the curriculum goes hand in hand with this. It, it's, you know, that's why you don't have, you know, you don't have cults of particle physicists that kill themselves when the alien ship's supposed to come over, right? Like, it's, it's right. not, you know, the, the people who really understand, you know, astronomy and physics are probably a lot less likely to, to fall victim to, you know, crazy alien stories, right? Yeah, exactly, because they know facts and how unlikely it would be for another life form to be out there, at least one that's like us, and so they can rationally think through likelihoods and statistics or what it would take and what they know about what's out there so far. And so they're, they're on that track. They're not on the track. You know, what you said reminded me one of my very first satires when I was red pilling was a one women's studies 101. And I was pretending to be a professor. And I said, the faster you empty your mind, the faster we can fill it with what we need you to know. And the faster we can do that, the faster you can work on our behalf <laughs> in the streets. And so yeah. essentially that's what they're doing. They're like empty your brain of everything you know cuz we really need to refill it with a new script. Yeah. And look as a parent I think it should be I think this should be downright frightening to parents because I I'll tell you this, you know, I not a lot of people see what happens to kids outside of their community. And so you're comparing your kid to your other, to other kids their age and you're seeing what's going on at school and it becomes normalized. Um, but in other countries, let me, let's, let's just pick on a country that's potentially a huge foe for the next generation. Not in China, right? China kids are learning actual mm -hmm. facts and how to think. Now, granted, they're also being indoctrinated into communism, sure. but, but, they are, the standards are high. I mean, there are kids, you know, we know a kid who was here. He was considered a math guru here. He went to China 
to a, he went kind of back home to China to a, I won't say a dumbed down school, but it was like an international school. So the standards are lower. And within two weeks, the mom got a phone call that he was behind in math, right? Yeah. This, is, yeah. this is what's happening to our kids. And I'm not saying I, you know, I don't love the Chinese school system. That's not what I'm saying. But what mm -hmm. I am saying is our standards are really, really low. I, I think so too. My daughter is, her second grade teacher uh, tested her for TAG, which is talented and gifted. Uh, and she passed the test and she's TAG. So that means that teachers are required to, and I'm not sure how, if people who are watching understand this in the US, there's this program. I don't even know if it's state specific or if it's all over the US. So I'm explaining it a little bit. So they test you in math and English. And then if you test high, they call you TAG, talented and gifted, which means the teachers are required to give you harder work and more work. And so my daughter tested in that. And so she does get a lot more more difficult things or even more freedom to be more creative with because she'll finish the stuff first and then get it done. But I have to be honest, like I don't, she's not a genius, you know, I mean, she's just, she's smart, but like you wouldn't call her gifted if, unless you were, I mean, I wouldn't, unless you were like talking about some sort of a math whiz or some like person who has photographic memory or something that's really like a gift that you're just going, holy crap. Like you've seen those two-year-olds that can do long division or, you know, crazy stuff that's gifted. And so when people are like, she's tag, I'm like, well, yeah, compared to everybody else in here, but seriously, like she gets her homework done. She gets it done in class before it goes home with her. But that, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And, and, and I see the same, I see the same kind of thing. And, you know, even the, I see a lot of what, even the smart kids, you look at what they're doing and it's like, yeah, I mean, that's okay. I don't think it's really, is it even better than the average kid was doing 30 years ago? I, I, I don't know. I don't, I mean, things have been so dumbed down. Yeah. Even, even the challenges that they give my daughter aren't enough, but like I said, I don't think she is genius level math or English. I mean, she, she is pretty impressive when it comes to reading. Like she was reading at age four full books, like not, you know, hard books, but kid books. Right. And um, one summer, I think she was five maybe. And one summer we went to the library. They have at the library, these little programs, summer reading programs for kids to encourage them to do some reading. And, and basically this particular program decided instead of telling the kids we're going to have you read 20 minutes a day and then you check off a box and if you check off all the boxes you can come back and get you know uh, coupons for free ice cream and like they'll give you a free book and there's all these incentives and so but this particular summer program decided to say to the kids you decide how many books you're going to read this summer <laughs> and then if you <laughs> yeah and then if you read all of those, you win. Like yep. you did it. Yeah. So like you could be like two, you know, and you're five. So you read like two minutes of reading and you're done. Right. Berenstein Bears and, and you're over. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, but so my daughter goes there and she's all, I'm going to read. And it's, we only had like four weeks. I forget. We only had a couple of months. We started late and she goes, I'm going to read 71 books. And, and then you get in that dilemma where you're like, Oh, shh. I don't want to say a bad word if you get you demonetized. Right, no, but yeah. But you're like, oh no, now she's going to be like, oh, very disappointed that she didn't reach the goal she set for herself. And 
and kids don't know how to set realistic goals either. That's and, not and, and as a parent, you're like, okay, now do I say like, you can't do that and tell your child you can't accomplish your goal. What do you do? So I was just like, I just go, okay, 71. Um, are you sure that's the number you want to choose? And she goes, okay, 79. I'm like, oh my goodness. Okay, 79. You have like, to walk them through it because I've had my daughter do that as well. Her, her, She also is like, I would say math and science, not her favorite things, but more of a reader. Um, but you have to walk through because she also has these like huge appetites. I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, okay, you would have to read. Let's just do some math. You'd have to read one book every day for, you know, or three books a day or whatever. Like, is that, oh, like they don't, then they can yeah. kind of be like, oh, I guess that's more than I can read realistically. Well, listen to this. So I write down 79 real quick because I'm like, oh, crap, it's only going to get higher. Yeah. <laughs> And so I'm like, okay, 79, got it. And I write it down and I thought, well, you know, here's, this is the library's fault. If she fails, she fails. Right. And um, she got it done in two weeks. Like, <laughs> See, she knew what she was doing. Yeah. I was like, well, I'm glad I didn't question her exactly. But yeah, you never, but this is what I'm saying with the dumbing down. You, you have to give kids at least a ballpark, right? you have to say a minimum of 20 or something, you know, three week pill. Cause you're dealing with like six year olds. They yeah. can read seven books in an hour because their books are like three pages and they say, see cat run, you know? Right. Yeah. And it also obviously depends on the book, but that's the thing. Kids don't know how to pick goals. They don't know how to like, when you just give kid an, an, a kid an open-ended, like pick a goal for yourself. They don't know where to start. That's not an, it's like for an adult, it's easy. You and I have read a lot of books. So if you say, Carter, can you read 79 books this summer? I'm like, uh, uh, I mean, unless I get to read Berenstein Bears, there's no way. Right. So (laughs) I can't get that done, but they don't, they don't have, they don't have the experience. They don't understand that. No. And, and also here's an example of dumbing kids down. So I went to a parent teacher conference with my son when he was at a regular public school and the, his handwriting is so bad. He can't read it himself. Like he can't read it. And we were sitting there at this meeting. I said, son, you read this. And he couldn't figure it out. And I said, okay. So I talked to the teacher and I go, so what can we do about this? You know? And she's like, do you think this is important to work on? And I said, well, what do you think? I mean, <laughs> like she goes, well, if you think it's important to work on, we can work on. I was like, yeah. I mean, he was like in fifth grade and <laughs> I go, yeah, I think it's important. I mean, why wouldn't it be? And she's like, well, people do a lot of typing now. And I'm like, yeah, but like it's handwriting. Like what if the electricity's out and you have to leave a note for the electrician <laughs> on, people. <sighs> so anyway, I made him come home and do the kindergarten thing where you have to trace letters. Oh yeah. Yeah. He hated my guts, but I was like, son, unless I can read like one, you have to be able to read it until I can read your hand. And his teacher wouldn't even hold him to that standard in fifth grade. Yeah. How do you grade essays? Because by fifth grade, you're writing things that the teacher's grading. No, they type it out now on Google docs. Oh, okay. okay. So, but yeah, I go, how are you going to write your girlfriend a love note? He goes, type it, duh. And a text, emojis, mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, a good objective measure of, I think, of dumbing down is, um, speaking of books, if you look at the actual recommended age for a lot of books, 
you'll see that it's way older than the child would actually, that would actually read the book. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, their, their expectation for children's reading level is, is quite low. So they'll put stuff down that, you know, they'll have stuff listed as, uh, you know, appropriate for a sixth grader, but your third grader can probably be reading it. It's just, you know, their, their standards are so low. So. Yeah. Yeah. That was my daughter. She was a fast reader. So she would whip through everything. But the thing is like, I, I understand it when kids are slow readers, like I was, so I was actually shocked when my daughter was so amazing at it. And actually she, um, started reading books to herself instead of me reading them to her once she learned how to read because she was way more animated. She read without stumbling. I still kind of stumble over words. So when I would read her these children's books, she's like, I can read it, mommy. I'll read it to you. And I was like, yeah, why don't you do that? So I get (laughs) it. (laughs) Like I get it, but I get it when people have a hard time catching up with reading or whatever it is. But, but like that should be the standard of challenging children to get better and not just sticking with their level and bringing everyone down to it. And if they, if they happen to exceed it, you call them talented and gifted or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, there's no, there's no, challenging kids anymore and there's uh yeah a a constant ratcheting down of expectations and you mentioned this they're they're building weak ineffectual kids they're they're building them weak ineffectual adults they're building adults that don't have to deal with adversary uh like any adversity because every time anyone's feelings are hurt, whatever it hurt, anyone's gets, everyone gets coddled to right away. They don't have expectations about achievement that are actually difficult. Um, and they're, you know, their mind is being filled with this, you know, getting back to the play, it's being filled with this social justice crap. So when they get out, it's no wonder, it's no wonder that they, they, they protest a speaker yeah. that they don't like at college. It's no wonder that they cry and whine about everything and it, yeah. can't culture and you tweeted something that hurt my feelings. Therefore, you should be banned. No wonder they're like that. Yeah, exactly. Because parents don't realize that when their kid comes home from school and they say, how was the play? And the kid goes, shrugs and goes, it's all right. They don't realize that they feel that way because the play wasn't actually about Jane Goodall. It was about her neighbor's her bigoted neighbors. So the, the kid isn't going to be able to verbalize that. They're not going to be able to figure out why they thought it was, eh, you know, because, and the parents aren't going to know to ask because they assume that they learned something about Jane Goodall. Right. So as a parent, I, I'm telling you, you have to check in with the curriculum, look through the books, look through the material, especially the health stuff. It's so bad. The health oh, yeah, stuff. You've got to pull them out for a lot of the health stuff. Yeah, the health stuff, they're like, they do this identity thing of like, you know, some people identify as a jock and some people that are born male identify as a female. And you're like, no, not the same. Sorry. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you gotta, you gotta read the health stuff, but yeah, I just have to check in with it because then you know how to check in with your kids. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents assume that it's like, you know, when they, when their kid comes home and shrugs about the Jane Goodall play they assume that it's similar to when they would shrug when they came home and talked to their parents. And they're just kind of, you know, people assume that school's kind of like it was when, when they went to school. It's not. It's not like it was when you went to school. It's much, much worse. Mm-hmm. And you really have to be vigilant about that. So. Yeah. 
Well, Gracie, um, thank you very much for, for co-hosting Unsafe Space today. And uh, I don't know, I, I don't know when we'll see you next, maybe a couple of weeks from now, but uh, yeah, thanks for your, thanks for hosting. How can people follow you by the way? They can go to my website on readgraciewest.com and sign up, give me your email. I'll keep you posted on a book that I am releasing. It's a red pill novel. I'm releasing it on Valentine's Day. So if you like modern fiction and you want to see a feminist life fall apart, that's the book for you. Also, <laughs> I have a YouTube channel, Embarrassing Mom. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Um, don't forget to like, subscribe, share. Uh, we are, I think we're now over 2,000. So yay, we're over 2,000 uh, subscribers. On Congrats. YouTube. Yeah, thank you. Took, took, took a while, but, you know, we're there. I don't know what the next milestone is. Maybe 3,000. But um, yeah, thanks everyone, and we'll see you tomorrow. If you would like to hear another Portland arts experience, I could tell you one of the trippiest things I have ever witnessed with my own eyes. Yeah, I totally want to hear it. Okay, it's off topic. That's okay. We'll, you know what? We'll, uh, we'll put it at the end. Okay. And if people want to hear it, then they get to hear it. So okay. go. What is it? Well, okay. So my sister-in-law and I, we were young moms. We were always home with the kids. We decided it's Art Portland Arts Week or Art Festival or something. And we don't really have a lot of money, but we were like, oh, there's some free ones. So we'll go to this free art exhibit on Friday night or whatever. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we show up to this exhibit. We have no idea what it is because it has some weird name and we don't know what that is. And we get there and it's, it's in this kind of a small room, small space-ish. And the floor is covered with something. I can't remember if it was plastic or paper. The whole room was covered. In, like if you were going to murder someone, you would do this to the room. You would like have it all covered so you didn't have blood splats type of thing. Okay. So you had to put on these little hospital booties when you walked into this room. And you're like, why? What is happening? Okay. You walk in and there's streamers hanging from the ceiling, although almost down to the floor. So you're like walking through this streamer stuff. And then there's some people standing there all kind of around looking naked, but they're wearing like tight fitting nude colored underwear. Okay. okay. So they're standing there like statues and you're walking around them trying to get around them. And you're like, I'm not sure where I'm supposed to go exactly. It's not a very big room. And I guess I'll just like scoot over here to the edge. And, and there was this little table where one of those actors is sitting and just like sitting at this little desk, okay? So we're just wandering about, kind of going, what do we do, what is this? And suddenly these people start to move. And they start to 
walk backwards or something. I can't remember, but they were acting all creepy, you know? And so we kind of back ourselves up to the wall because we're like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but this is super creepy. <laughs> then they bite down on something that's in their mouth and it's like red dye and it starts like dripping down their chins and down their neck and all the way down. Like they're painted kind of white. So they're all creepy anyway. And then they've got this red something dribbling out of their mouth, down their body. And then they go up to the guy at the desk who has his like hands laid out like this and they all have a pencil and they start stabbing between his fingers like this. Right. Yep. And they are in line and they, the one who just did the stabbing around his fingers gets in the back of the line and the next one does it. And they start to go faster and faster and faster until you're like, they're totally going to stab that man's fingers off because they're like banging the desk really hard and they're going so fast. They finally, all of them rush forward and they're all doing it at the same time. I was like, oh my God, this is so creepy. I don't want to be here, but you can't get out because they're between you and the door. And then behind us, this curtain opens and there's like this other room where there's like a glass wall, but behind it, there's two people sitting on chairs facing each other that look like these guys, right? White, painted, weird. But they have masks, like weird masks on their face. So then they start to bark at each other. One like of them bark. is barking, and then the other one barks, and then they bark, and then they start barking like dogs that are going to kill each other, like growling viciously. And I'm telling you, when we left there, we were just like shaking because it was such a freaky, freakish crazy, gross, weird experience. And I thought I'm never going to a Portland arts festival again, because I'm pretty, I feel kind of traumatized. <laughs> this is Portland. Okay. Well, just keep that in mind. The next time someone says we really need to fund the national endowment for arts. Otherwise, how will all the wonderful art get made? Yeah. I told her, I said, listen, if my kid went to art school and I went and saw this exhibit and I had paid for her to go to art school, I would make her pay that money back to me. Yes. That is unacceptable. That's not art. That's just how, how can we creep people out the most? That's what yeah. they decided to do. 